Hi everyone and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rorkraut. And today we have our next award season check-in for you. We will be talking about the winners of the New York Film Critics Circle and two movies, May, December, and The Boy and the Heron. I'm really excited to dig into both of these movies today. Yeah, so am I. Two really incredible movies that are so much more rewarding after multiple watches. They're somewhat tricky movies because they're very layered, so you can read them multiple ways, which I really love. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about these and to start the conversation with the New York Film Critic Circle Awards, which came out and both of those movies showed up. So I'm glad to see that. I was a little surprised with some of the winners, but These are definitely the winners at the start of the season, one of the first awards that we get that I really look at because these are ones that may not show up at the Oscars or at other big ceremonies. So I love to see other movies, sometimes smaller movies getting recognized, but I think we have a good mix here with our winners. Yeah, we definitely do. So just to go through them quickly, um, best first film went to Past Lives, international film went to Anatomy of a Fall. Nonfiction film went to Menus Placiers Les Trois Cinematography went to Hoyte van Hoytema for Oppenheimer. Animated feature went to The Boy and the Heron. Screenplay went to Sammy Birch for May December. Supporting actress went to Divine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers. Supporting actor went to Charles Melton for May December. Best actress went to Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon. Actor went to Franz Rogowski for Passages. Director went to Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer. And the best film winner was Killers of the Flower Moon. Any key takeaways for you here? I know you just said this is kind of the first big stop in terms of Mm -hmm. awards. I know we have the Gotham Awards, but those are juried and it's harder, I think, to attach meaning to them, whereas this is the first big step, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think my takeaway is more of what's not here. I love these entries. Oppenheimer being the bigger film of the bunch. I mean, Killers is big in a different way. We've talked about almost all of these on the pod already, which is great. (laughs) And I'm sure many of them will continue to show up throughout the season and in our contender series. But I think the biggest thing is I wanted to see the zone of interest. I wanted to see poor things and we didn't. And that scares me for Jonathan Glazer because I think he needs to be winning many director's prizes. I'm not saying Nolan shouldn't. I just didn't expect them to go that way with Oppenheimer giving them two awards when they're pretty good on spreading the love. Yes, May December also got two and Killers also got two. So I like the movies featured. Did you expect things to go differently or how did you feel about them? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy because if I look at this group, it's like, I really did love every single movie here that I saw. I haven't seen the Wiseman doc. I have not put aside four hours to do so yet, but every other film here I really loved. But I still find myself thinking, you know, I wish there was just a little bit more variety and creativity creativity specifically, because the New York Film Critics Circle will go their own way from time to time. They make these choices sometimes that are a bit more off the beaten path. So to see them go for industry favorites or things that I think we can count on getting Oscar nominations, that's just not usually how we see it playing out. But 
I'm not going to complain overall. I think I'm most happy with actor and actress. I mean, I think the four acting categories actually are fantastic. Like Lily Gladstone, I think that she really should just continue to win out for the rest of the season. I think that performance is just spectacular. Franz Rogowski for Passages. When I talk about creativity, this is what I mean. Like we, I wanted more wins mm-hmm. like this from movies that people might not be as familiar with. And like, he's not going to win an Oscar, but this is where performances like that come through or should. So yeah, I think I wish there was more of that. But overall, I think that the the wins are their wins are really strong. And yes, I think the zone of interest. What's interesting is that I've been talking about this offline, I think, for a few weeks now in that I've been a bit concerned about the zone of interest performing well here because for all of the praise, there were pretty major New York critics who didn't like this movie at all. And when I say didn't like it, I mean, hate it, like give it one star talk about how they thought it was a horrible film. So I did wonder if that would come through, just the more polarizing nature of a Glazer film. But we still have the LA Film Critics Association, and I'm curious what happens there. Poor things not showing up is odd. I think especially because the places where I could maybe count on it, those categories feel really strong at the Oscars. Like, I I don't know. Maybe LA will do something different. That's where the favorite started to really, I think, pick it up a bit. So we'll see. But I personally prefer Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon to Poor Things. So I'm not mad about it, but it is curious. I think the cinematography in Poor Things is outstanding. That is a New York win to me, but I totally agree about all of the acting choices. Divine Joy Randolph. I love it so much. I wish she would win all of the awards this season. But yeah, almost all of these movies are in my top 10 to 15 for the year, which is incredible. And having chosen Past Lives and Anatomy on our fantasy draft, I felt very vindicated in my choosing, if these go somewhere, TBD. But I'm hoping they do because they deserve it. And a friend last night was like, oh my God, did I tell you? I saw Anatomy of a Fall and I absolutely loved it. I was immediately having a conversation with the people I watched it with afterwards fighting over what happened. And again, a lot of these movies have so many layers and so much creativity. And I'm glad that we get to talk about them more in the coming months. I'm always going to think of you whenever Anatomy of a Fall shows up because it also won at the Gotham's. I'm just curious to see how Neon pushes it because it really is sticking with people. And sometimes that's all you really need. And it is the Palme d'Or winner as well. So maybe there's something there for Justine Trier too. That would be really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, But speaking of the draft, it's very funny that I I didn't expect to really get a lot of points with the New York Film Critics Circle once the zone of interest wasn't winning things. But the fact, again, that my two Oppenheimer picks of specifically Nolan (laughs) and Hoytema and Hoytema I did laugh at that. I think those will those will come through for me throughout award season. Yeah, definitely. And all deserved. So yeah, we'll see how the draft shakes out and we'll definitely give updates along the way. So far, we have some really high earners already out of this one award ceremony. Mm-hmm. So also, I thought we included the Gothams. That's kind of what I was thinking about with Past Lives and Anatomy. And I was like, yes, points. And I was like, oh, wait, we took it out. <laughs> We did. Yep. Too many ceremonies to count. (laughs) Yeah. 
So let's go ahead and get into the meat of our episode. These two really big films, May, December, and The Boy and the Heron. Starting with May, December, the description here, 20 years after the notorious tabloid romance, a married couple buckle under the pressure when a Hollywood actress meets them to do research for a film about their past. This was directed by Todd Haynes and written by Sammy Birch. It stars Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore, and Charles Melton. Charles Melton won the Gotham Award for Best Supporting Performance and the New York Film Critics Circle Prize for Best Supporting Actor, and Sammy Birch won Best Screenplay at the New York Film Critics Circle, like we just mentioned. This film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival where you saw it. So you saw it first months ago, back in May, but it just dropped on Netflix in the States on Friday, December 1st. So a lot of people have been talking about it online. I think it has kind of been, it's been a much discussed film already. I know that my timeline is just full of clips and stills of the movie. I think it's really catching on and hitting people. And I love to see that. But walk me through how you feel about May, December. How many times have you seen it now? And just in general, what do you think of the film now, months later, from your first viewing? So I've seen it twice at this point. I rewatched it recently in theaters, and I am dying to watch it again at home now that it's out. It's a movie that has stuck with me since can. I wish I had rewatched it at the festival and I was so excited for it to finally come out and to see all of the conversation on Twitter. Yeah, it's just scrolling and it's May December after May December post. And I love I love that people are interacting with it. If they get it or not, I don't think I did my first time either in seeing how dark of a film it actually is and how it ends. It really took me more time to just let it sit and fester within me. I think every part of the movie is a success. I love the performances. I love the cinematography. His camera is just exquisite in how it captures them or certain things like the butterflies and the writing. I mean, we're talking about Sammy Birch so much already. I think the writing is perfection. It's funny. It's dark. It's so melodramatic and I think the elements just work so well in Todd Haynes's hands and putting in the direction it's really is a masterpiece in it in how much I have thought about it since May funny May and December 1st I was just gonna say (laughs) you saw it in May and in December you're gonna watch it again (laughs) it is sticking with me like tar it is a precisely made film and has so many things to say about people and relationships and emotions. And yeah, it makes me so happy. I I said this when we first talked about it, but it's still crazy to me to see this one doing so well, people loving it, but just coming out in 2023. It feels like such a unique film. And yeah, I love that. How do you feel about May, December? Or what do you love most about this? It's hard to know where to begin. This is exactly how I felt last year when we talked about Tar and the year before when we talked about The Power of the Dog. And like those two, this is my favorite film of 2023. I am obsessed with it. And I knew from the moment that that aggressive, blaring score from the go-between started Mm -hmm. over these title cards with the butterfly. And I just had this unsettling feeling I knew this was going to be a film for me. And what unfolded 
continue to surprise me in new ways. I love the performances. I think that the the look of it is also immaculate. The cinematography is gorgeous. I love the film's references and I find that there's just so much there to dive into and to try to, you know, think of the meaning of it all, but also like think about within yourself how do certain scenes and certain lines of dialogue make you feel. This movie is about what it means to perform for others, what your idea of the truth is, and it's ultimately also a power struggle. And those are also key tenets of melodrama. I think this is an incredibly smart melodrama as a genre. And I know that Todd Haynes loves Douglas Sirk, and so do I, but this, I think, fills that need that I have in me for a modern day version of that 40s or 50s melodrama. And I think in a similar way, right, that that Cambion did in Power of the Dog or that Field does in Tar, both in very different ways, it makes you really uneasy and it forces you to pay attention and to be a completely active participant in the film. Not in a way like some filmmakers do to try to get you to solve a riddle or to look at clues. It's not like that. It forces you to be engaged in every little detail and interrogate those feelings that come up in you when you're watching it. So yeah, I I adore this movie and I'm so happy that people seem to really like it too. Yeah, I love that it doesn't spell anything out for you. And the way Mm -hmm. we learn about things isn't really through them. It's through Elizabeth, the Natalie Portman character, who is an actress portraying Gracie in the feature film version of their story, which is, you know, kind of meta looking at May December as a movie and learning things through an actor and learning about her process and how she imitates Gracie and what she gleans and takes from that experience of following her around for the time that we're with them before she actually shoots the film makes you think of the story and how he is choosing to tell it in a different way. So again, that's like a layer in itself. And then you get into the characters and figuring out what this relationship is. And really before we get to know Gracie and Joe, we see their past as Elizabeth is like going to the pet store, that fish store where they were first caught. And I think it's fascinating to see it from this perspective because once we actually meet Gracie and Joe, I mean, we see them early on, but we don't really see them interact until later on. And I think once we do, we're a little surprised because the relationship, there's so much more to that than we actually see or that Elizabeth first sees. So yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> I know there's so much. And I think, you know, the, the ambiguity in it is so interesting to me because that also fits with a classic melodrama and that there's usually a kind of fake happy ending of sorts and then you feel somewhat unmoored and there's this ambiguous sense and that's exactly what happens here by the end of this movie and I think that there's ambiguity and you have questions throughout despite certain tricks of obviousness that Haynes deploys which I think is what keeps you on your toes so for example 
like the beginning of the film with the title credits with the eggs and the butterfly on the surface that's a very on the nose metaphor right of this joe character growing and by the end right having this kind of metamorphosis or understanding but then it's actually undermined that's what how haynes describes it with that pointed score you have this delicate image but then it's you're like oh wait what is this actually this isn't what i thought it was going to be and when we first meet (laughs) we have to talk about the funny line because it is one of her first lines in the movie but when we first meet Gracie, right? We know a little bit about, okay, they're having this barbecue. She and Joe are, they're married. There's this huge age difference. Again, we don't know the, the entirety of it yet, but it's based on, or it's loosely based on the Mary Kay Letourneau case, but that Elizabeth is going to play her. And they're just these little bits and pieces of information floating around, but they're having this barbecue and they're talking about Elizabeth coming to visit and how, you know, they hope that everything is portrayed in the right way and everything like that. We don't really know the details, but then we get this slow zoom with that score on (laughs) Julianne Moore's Gracie opening the refrigerator and saying in that lisp, that more chooses to add for the character. I don't think we have enough hot dogs. Cut to <laughs> 45 hot dogs on the grill. Cut to so many <laughs> hot dogs on the grill. And it's it's funny because it's a humorous line. And um, Christine Vachon, one of the producers of the film, noted on Twitter over the weekend that none of the comedy in the movie is unintentional. All of the humor is purposeful and it's supposed to be there. And it's It's humorous, I think, because it also shows you right away how Gracie as a character feels, right? Things are extreme to her. She operates in her domesticity in a very extreme way. Everything is overblown. It's like, of course, this is how she would feel about believing that there aren't enough hot dogs. And of course, in reality, there are plenty. There are too many. And in that moment, after we cut to the grill... He also plays with sound in a really unique way because we see Joe, who's having a conversation with this other man. They're talking about Elizabeth. And all of a sudden, there is this shrill scream from this little girl. The score and the sound work of the movie operates in that way to always keep you guessing and to throw you off and to feel like there's something darker and more disturbing there. Almost like a horror movie or a thriller. Yeah, and that's another layer to watching the movie is that Everything is seemingly happy at first. They're together. They're a happy family. The kids are graduating. He found this larva on the plant, and this is his like favorite hobby of growing them and restoring the monarch butterfly population single-handedly. Just, yeah, sweetheart. But underneath all of this is so much mystery. You're seeing these shots of them, but you're wondering... I don't feel at ease watching this. And it's not only because of the age difference and what we learn about Mm -hmm. abuse and how it happened and their feelings and when it started, but there is more to the image than what we just see. And I love that horror you mentioned, the mystery of it all. And at the ending, again, it's this happy moment at graduation and Joe is crying, watching his daughters, but they're not exactly happy tears. And Mm -mm. Elizabeth going off to shoot the movie. She's like fully transformed. Uh, Natalie Portman, just incredible. The way they match at the end and (laughs) let alone the makeup scene in the middle. There's 
so many images there in my are so head. many scenes and images yeah. to talk about with them <laughs> and i started thinking about this on my second viewing your first viewing it really does take you a minute i think to to really get into the world and unlock pieces of it and figure out how you're feeling about it and the second watch i think things become much clearer but i started thinking to myself who is the better actress is it elizabeth or is it actually gracie because they are both in a sense acting and performing throughout the movie even before elizabeth's movie where she's playing gracie has even happened and i think my answer to that really is gracie gracie is more successful she has the power in most of the movie i think which is such a strange realization to come to when you're watching it because when elizabeth arrives and one of the th- one of the things that is so unsettling about the movie and and what you don't know how to feel about is that elizabeth is a very unreliable character in many ways right she comes into the frame and you think that this outsider who's trying to learn about the story is going to be your gateway into learning more about this couple but in reality she makes things more complicated She unlocks additional layers within herself and within the other characters and in the story that I think make it more complex and make it and really describe the genius of the film. Because when she gets there, you feel at ease, I think, because you kind of know this woman. She speaks in a particular way. She has these crispy R's. She speaks like a Kardashian. And she uses a lot of therapy speak when she's talking to the girls and when she's talking to the other characters like she says phrases like I want you to feel seen and heard it's all fake it's all a performance the whole time it's this searching for authenticity whatever that means and she knows she knows that that's not real either in her commitment to searching for what's real is I don't know it's so complex she tries to learn more about Gracie and she becomes more like Gracie that's when the film enters the stratosphere for me where I think okay Haynes has made a masterpiece that reminds me of something that I would have watched when I was growing up diving into 50s cinema it really does evoke like an older kind of movie and talking about Gracie a bit there's a line she says more than partway through I think but she says I am naive in a way it's a gift and Mm -hmm. it just makes you look at the character so differently because we are starting to get to know her and there is a flip and there's a fight scene later on where Joe and Gracie are arguing and we just see a totally different side to Gracie in that moment. So it it makes you really think of who is she? And like you said, is she acting? What is she holding back? And who has she become being with Joe through all this time, Mm -hmm. going to jail, having the kids in jail and then coming back, getting married, it's its an insane relationship. But I think there are a lot of things to learn from it and to see how people cope, deal with grief, how they love each other, how they are as parents, and how they are to other people in their family. Yeah, and it's interesting too because the way that the film frames them early on, we have this, this shot of them from afar where kind of like snuggling up together outside and... This other woman says, oh, they're, you know, they're a very valuable part of this community. Like, we care about them, you know, and it's these little moments of sweetness. But then there's a sour 
undercurrent, but he never shows anything. He keeps it at a distance. So, for example, they get this box in the mail and we don't actually see what's in the box. It's like seven, really. But the second that Elizabeth brings Gracie the box, she calls out for Joe. When Elizabeth asks her what's in the box, she says S-H-I-T. There's like a southernness to her character and like a protectiveness that is so odd. And even later, these little points that will come up where they seem almost like a normal couple, but then Elizabeth will ask, oh, when did you meet? And they both in unison correct her when she says summer after sixth grade, they say seventh at the same time. And it's like, that doesn't make it better though. That actually is still, you know, horrible. But anyway, when you talked about Gracie, that line where she describes herself as naive, Julianne Moore in an interview described her character in such an interesting way where she said, She's concocted this narrative of true love. She's someone who had a sexual relationship with a 13-year-old. And in order to propel her narrative forward, she views it as a great love story. So in that sense, he has to be a man at 13, and she is the child, and she remains the child, elevating him to manhood. But her view of life is that of someone who is hyper-feminine, very childlike, very naive, very fragile and dependent. It's a very difficult narrative to give support to. So she's always looking for affirmation from the outside. You also think of how emotionally volatile she is because of the space between what happened and the story that she's telling. I thought that was such a brilliant distillation of the character of thinking of her as this like hyper feminine woman and how she's reverted to these childlike characteristics. And she puts on a front that their relationship is this fairy tale, you know, romantic thing because that's what she believes she has to do. And that's, I think, what she's convinced herself that it is but that space between what she believes and reality is so far that that's so difficult to understand and in reality joe is the child right like she elevates him to manhood yes in her eyes when he's 13 but he never progresses from being that 13 year old boy like he has the most severe case of arrested development because of her and her you know being a predator and you know, taking advantage of him. And Charles Melton, I think, in his performance of Joe, displays that brilliantly. It's the type of performance that with each watch, you just catch these small little choices that he incorporates into the character that I think just make him such a heartbreaking, tragic figure, really, of the story of the melodrama. And he's gotten so much awards attention and praise. I mean, it started in May. It started at Cannes with people saying that he was the standout and it's definitely continued through its release. So I'm glad to see love for everybody across the table because I do think they are all fabulous. With Charles, it's definitely a a newer kind of role for him. We knew him from like Riverdale, right? Yeah, Riverdale. I was going to ask you if you've watched Riverdale because that's part of the brilliance of his casting. And we can talk about adults playing teenagers in a minute because that's also a a key part of the story and part of what makes the meta aspect so smart. But yeah, did you watch Riverdale? I watched maybe the first season. Maybe I can't remember if I watched the second too, but I didn't really remember his character from the show. But I think in what he has to do here is just such a mature portrayal of this guy who really had to grow up so quickly. And we kind of understand watching the film and in his performance that he didn't really ever grow up 
he kind of went through the emotions in being a father and a husband, but there are things that he lacked in his development that really makes it heartbreaking to watch in the emotions that he finally gets to confront and talk about and think about later in the film. Once he's sat with this experience with Elizabeth, there are key scenes that I won't really get into or spoil, but they just further how much trauma he's been through and hasn't been able to process any of that. And there is some catharsis in the end, but it's not something you'd expect or that is really that really feels good when you finally get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the tone is so specific. It really, really walks a tightrope. But it is, it's ultimately, I think, you know, people are trying to define what this film is. Is it camp? Is it not? I am just a firm believer and will keep saying again and again that this is a Haynes melodrama in the, the finest possible form. And I think one of the things with Joe as well that I find really sad, and it gets back to that the way we were talking about Gracie and the way that Julianne Moore describes this character is that, you know, even though she sees herself as the one who doesn't have power and control, the way she talks about it, like she says that he seduced her and she puts a lot of the blame on him because she's created this this fairy tale narrative where she lives in a particular way. And when Todd Haynes and Julianne Moore were talking, he described it as princess syndrome. She considers herself to be this damsel in distress and that he's going to save her from the woes of her domestic life. When in reality, she, she loves being in this domestic space and it's her power over him through her age, through the agency that she has, she has, it's how she, she continues to exert control over him and whether she believes she has this power or not is really interesting and there are moments in the film where she acts like she's his mother and those are the moments too that when I'm watching and I clock and just think like oh this is gross right this is actually a gross moment there's a part when after the barbecue he gets into bed with her and she tells him that he's stinking up the sheets and it's a line that a mom would say to a a teenage boy yeah. Like if he didn't shower before bed. And it's just little moments like that, I think, that make Sammy Birch's script so spot on because that's uncomfortable. It makes you uncomfortable. And it's clear that they want to make you sit in that and think about what that means. And I think framing this dark story as a comedy at times or things that come across as funny is really just is the cherry on top to how Haynes made the film, how Sammy wrote this film. Because it adds this other dimension. I think it's more fun to talk about. I think it will get more audiences to see this movie than if it were just either a biopic or something Mm -hmm. that was very serious the whole time. Completely. Right? Because we've seen the version of this movie that is the true crime story without the comedy. You know, another director could have made a Mary Kay Letourneau movie and it would have had a completely different tone. But this... The fact that it is funny just adds so much to it, I think. And the details in it are just are so smart. And in terms of humor, it actually reminds me of two of my favorite movies visually and just in terms of humor. Um, One is Manhattan that also features an age gap, I would say. But the way that Haynes 
holds the camera, and he talked about this in his Letterboxd interview, the way that he holds the camera and you see characters, they're arguing or they're having conversations in and out of the frame within a single shot makes it more humorous, but it also makes you feel a bit unsettled. And the other film, which I noticed right away when I was watching this, it reminded me of Barry Lyndon. The humor and the the very specific dryness to certain scenes or the way that you might be thinking, should I be laughing at this? Should I not be laughing at this? That reminded me of Barry Lyndon, especially in terms of the ways that Haynes uses the Kubrick zoom to really punch in the comedy. So again, that dramatic zoom into Gracie standing at the refrigerator, that is textbook Kubrick, Barry Lyndon to me. Yeah, I love that. And Haynes talked about how much of Persona Bergman's mm-hmm. film is in this too. And I haven't seen that yet, but I will definitely be oh, watching yeah, 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 yeah. to see those parallels. Well, and thinking about Persona, so I think we should talk about the two best scenes with the mirrors. Well, there are a couple, actually. There's a really underrated scene with Natalie early in front of a mirror when she's on the phone with, I believe, the man who she's who's supposedly her fiancé. And she is clearly getting bored talking to him as she's looking at herself in the mirror. And she says, oh, it's the network. I need to go. And then she has this, she hangs up on him and she has this really annoyed face. And it's clear she didn't have another incoming call. (laughs) Another window into the character, (laughs) for sure. Mm -hmm. And the other one that really sticks with me is when they're shopping for Mary, the daughter, her dress for graduation. And it's just an incredible shot. I want to pause the movie and just sit with it. Because you have Gracie and Elizabeth sitting next to each other, but there's a mirror on the right-hand side of the frame that is mirroring Gracie. So you really see Elizabeth sandwiched between two Gracies, and it's kind of like, which one is fake, which one is acting? But Mm -hmm. by the end of the movie, you come back to this shot and you think, they're all Gracie. Elizabeth has transformed, well, into a version of her, What she takes from being with Gracie is almost nothing of what we see of her. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That shot is stunning. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie. And again, it makes you think a bit more deeply about acting and about performance and about projection right there. It's also very gothic. I think this movie has a lot of Southern Gothic influence in it. Being set in Savannah, it's use of mirrors, it's use of ghosts, effectively, that are outside of the world of the film, that are you know, creating something for what's happening within the energy of the movie. But in that scene, what is so brutal, and truly, when I heard this line in the theater, I gasped out loud. I was so <laughs> uncomfortable, but was also laughing in horror, almost. I have the quote ready to go. She comes out and this she looks so cute. She has this sleeveless white dress on. And Gracie says, Mary, I really want to commend you for being so brave and showing your arms like that. I really mean it. That's something I've always wished I could do. Just not care about these unrealistic standards. You're a modern woman. Oh, my God. Oh, you can just see the life leave her daughter's mm-hmm. face. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to try on a different dress. She comes out with sleeves. Yeah, And just, like, is a specific almond mom thing. Like, instill this generational trauma around weight (laughs) 
and the gift, the scale being the gift later on that comes up for the girls. Awful. It's so awful. And she says something to the effect, too, of that. She says, you try going through life without a scale. See what happens. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> but these mother-daughter interactions, these scenes, made me immediately think of Lady Bird when they're also in the dressing room. And she kind of says a similar thing to her, like, are you sure you want that dress? Is it too pink? <laughs> But yeah, to see Mary come out with that second dress on and you know she doesn't like it, but she says she really loves it just to please Gracie. And it is so tremendously sad. Yes. Oh, it's so sad. And it just, again, gives you more insight into that character. And you see, again, the relationship that her children have with her, which I think through the film you see in other moments, like the morning of the graduation, how the children respond to Joe. It's completely different. It's almost unbelievable that he's their dad. But there's a warmth there that's missing from the scenes with their mom. But the other mirror-related scene we have to talk about. This is when I really felt like I was going to levitate out of my chair when I was watching the movie. Which is when you have Elizabeth watching Gracie apply her makeup in the mirror. And then Gracie starts to apply her makeup to Elizabeth herself and then at the at the end of that they both look in the mirror in this very dramatic way to not admire each other but to admire themselves in looking the same and there are so many lines about sameness or about being alike throughout the film we have one earlier when Gracie says to Elizabeth we're practically the same like we're the same size and later when Elizabeth says to Joe, we're the same age. Like there's a, a need for Elizabeth to relate to these people that I think is really interesting and in thinking about. But yeah, I love that scene and that moment of them looking into the mirror together. Mm-hmm. Very persona. There's an intimate quality to these moments and there is some queerness in there too. So I like how Haynes kind of plays them, capturing them together and separately in this mirror shot. There's... Another mirror shot, kind of, later on that morning of the graduation, and Joe is standing outside on his back porch, mm-hmm. and the sliding door is just open a little bit, and Mary comes into that frame. We can see her inside, but all we really see is Joe's reflection from the glass, and mm-hmm. I think that just says it all. There are so many beautiful metaphors in how they frame and what they decide to show or not show or who's off screen talking. But yeah, it's just this emptiness that he feels inside, even though this is the moment that he lets that butterfly go. And I like those close ups that we get of the butterfly evolving, because there's almost this erotic quality to that as well. So the way he imbues these shots with these intimate and erotic elements when the story really isn't this relationship is not erotic at all is just fascinating to read it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think going back to Melton for a second, I think it's interesting like how windows and screens are used with the character. He's either always watching TV, on his phone, he's a lot of times shot through windows, like you see that a couple of times throughout the film. And Melton's, Melton's posture should be studied by actors, I think, in the future. Because I truly do not know how this man so successfully embodied a 36-year-old man who's a 13-year-old in reality. Because the way that he moves reminded me so much of 
you know, like I, again, I used to teach high school boys and the way that they move through the world is very particular. And he nailed it. The posture, the mannerisms, how he would sit in those sweatpants. And it's, again, just another brilliant level of his performance. And the scene of him on the roof with his son when they're both smoking Mm -hmm. is heartbreaking. Yeah, this is my favorite scene of his because you get to see him as a father with this son and they do feel so close in age. It's just weird every time you see him with his kids. But he says this line about being a parent and not wanting to screw it up. And it's just so, so smart and revealing of who he is and what he's missed out on. Yeah, in that scene, he says, I can't tell if we're connecting or if I'm creating a bad memory for you. Mm. Which is just like, I think the darkness of parenthood in a nutshell, that's something that would really scare me, I think, as a parent, like the idea of that experience. Are you connecting or are you creating like a core negative memory for your child? You don't really know until after the fact. Another thing about Charles Melton that I and the Riverdale casting that I think is interesting is that it's it's funny because I was talking to my sister about this and she used to work in casting. We were talking about when you're casting teen roles, a lot of times what happens is you never actually go with a teenager. You go with someone in their 20s or who could convincingly play someone in high school. And that's that's what happened with Charles Melton and Riverdale. It's happened in a number of shows, but there's just such a great moment with Elizabeth, with Natalie, <laughs> when she's looking through the tapes of the potential Joes for the movie, and she wants them to be hot. Like, she says, like, I, why aren't they, you know, it's like, they're teenagers. Yeah. But it gets into, again, like, another layer of darkness, a, an ick factor <laughs> of the movie that I really like thinking about, and that she... In watching her interact with the teenagers in the classroom, too, when she goes to the high school to give, like, basically a watered-down master class <laughs> to these kids and answer their questions, you see, I think, the interest she has in answering those questions and the attention that she clearly likes receiving from those kids. It makes you think for a second. It's, it's again, it's really dark and also really funny at the same time. That scene reminded me of Tar, too. When Tar is at Juilliard. The single shot scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. I could go on and on. But we should get into awards potential. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about the awards potential for this movie? So, here's the deal. <laughs> this has my has the curse of being my favorite movie of the year, which means that it will do really well with critics. And then when nothing. it comes to the Oscars, I'll be disappointed. <laughs> And it's funny because this one, I think, at Cannes, it had kind of a muted response in comparison to some of the other movies. People really liked it, but I think everyone was talking about the zone of interest or anatomy of a fall, when in reality, this would have easily been my Palm d'Or winner. Again, that's just me, but it feels now kind of like it's, it's picking up steam a little bit with critics. So I think it really needs the critics push, though, to really make waves in the Oscar race. I think what would be really funny and really interesting is if, and I know these movies are different, so bear with me for the comparison, but if this were in a way like what happened with All Quiet on the Western Front last year, where it absolutely was not Netflix's priority, but it just had a really organic response and then translated come award Mm -hmm. season, 
Again, I don't think that's going to happen, but I think it would be very fun because right now, I mean, a lot of the attention, I think, on Netflix movies in terms of campaigning is being placed on Maestro. But I'm wondering if May, December will have a more positive response. We'll see. I mean, I, I, I think that the industry will really like Maestro. So I think it's a different case, but it would be just just interesting to see if this could pick up some awards too. I think the strongest places for it are really in supporting actor for Charles Melton and original screenplay. But my God, these actresses, Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore should both be in with a bullet. Absolutely. Natalie, I've never seen a performance like this from her. The way that she plays with her own artifice and the way that she can be very performative and mannered, her monologue Ugh. I yes. Uh, I have goosebumps thinking about it. Can you imagine if that was her Oscar scene, like a clip of that? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I said it should have been in May. That like four minute scene of her reading that letter is incredible. It's so good, and it's so funny too because that she's playing this woman who is more akin to a Lacey Chabert than a Meryl Streep. Like, she's a TV actress. She went to Juilliard, yes. One of the most interesting lines in the movie, I think, is when she and Julianne, in that makeup scene, are talking about their mothers. And she mentions, Elizabeth, that her her mom was an academic and wrote a book on epistemic relativism. And Gracie just says, oh, you know, my mom, she was very beautiful and she had a great blueberry cobbler recipe. And it's just like a very weird moment <laughs> but again it's a it's a performance from both of them and i think that yeah natalie portman just nails elizabeth as a character and i love 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 watching her and julianne moore also operating on another level that lisp i mean she's going for it and this is a woman who you know magnolia boogie nights she always goes for it and we mm-hmm. love her for that yeah her accent the lisp her diction All of it just comes together so perfectly. I felt like Natalie would have been the easiest Academy push, but there has been so much for Charles Melton that now I'm, yeah, really hoping that they all get in because they should. And if Julianne Moore could, I know that's probably one of our most crowded categories along with actress. So it's hard to know right now for sure. But yeah, I think they all absolutely deserve it. And I really would like to see this movie get as many nominations as Tar did. It had six nominations in so many different categories. I would love to see like a picture director nomination, but also acting and also technical things like editing or cinematography. Also writing, obviously, I think that's probably the easiest one to say will happen. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it deserves them across the board. And that shows that this movie will just stand the test of time. Yes. And okay, please. So this is kind of what we were talking about. It's like, I I understand that what Christopher Nolan did with Oppenheimer is an incredible achievement. We all know this. Someone please give your director prize to Todd Haynes. Mm -hmm. Mix it up. Someone like LA, please do it. (laughs) Listen. I would love for Todd Haynes to get into Best Director somehow. I mean, he he's had a really spotty track record with the Academy. He has one Oscar nomination for original screenplay for Far From Heaven. Let's get him into Director. <laughs> like, come on. This is one of the best directing achievements of the year. Hands down. So I would, yeah, I would love for him to get there. I think Picture can absolutely happen. 
especially with 10 nominees. And if it's strong in screenplay, if it's strong in supporting actor, which I know they have difficulty rewarding young, beautiful men, but please, Charles Melton, be the one. But yeah, I agree with you on cinematography too, I'll say, especially because the DP, Christopher Blovell, he is Kelly Reichert's DP. And he came in at the very last second because Ed Lockman, one of Todd Haynes' key collaborators, broke his femur and couldn't do the project anymore. So the fact that he had two weeks notice (laughs) and did this is crazy. Yeah. And the shoot was already short to begin with. It was only 23 days, which is insane to film all of this in under a month. Just crazy. So yeah, they're all very talented. And talking about Todd for a sec, with LA last year, Todd Field won. So it'd be kind of fun to have like a back-to-back Todd winner for director. The Todds. I just realized that I had my favorite movies of this year and last year, both by Todd. Fun. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Another tough one. But I think I'm going to go with Todd Haynes for director. Mm, Okay. Oh, Oh my God. But screenplay. I like cannot wait to read the screenplay for this movie. But I will say Todd Haynes. I think his craft and his vision is just so pure and inspiring that I hope he wins throughout the season for it because he really deserves I mean you think about Carol and how beloved that film is and was and you see parts of that here and how he captures relationships here like that couple and he is just mesmerizing to watch in Q&A's his answers are so incredibly thought out he's a very smart person and makes great movies seeing this movie made me want to go back and watch everything that i haven't seen by him so i will be doing that very soon what oscar would you give it i want to say best picture because Uh (laughs) it would just be such an incredible picture winner but what i'm about to do i think kind of goes against what i normally do which is you know really praise the actresses i'm such a fan of actressing right and it's peak and Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman do that here in spades. I've left the movie each time turning over in my mind, like, who is the MVP? Who is the best, you know, in this movie? And it changes, like, minute to minute with which performance I love the most. But I think if I had to pick one, I'm going to go supporting actor for Charles Melton. I think he really is the real deal. And what he does in this performance, it makes me so sad. He is such a heartbreaking, tragic figure. He taps into his past and our perception of him in such a smart way. But he also just, I think, to navigate the melodrama in the way that he does and to slowly reveal little by little, this realization that he has at 36. That's the core of the movie for me and what makes me keep thinking about it, really. There are a couple of heartbreaking moments. I think I think of him earlier in the film when he's standing in the driveway talking to Elizabeth and she asks him if she can just text him or stop by his work and he sees a light go on upstairs, you know, that Gracie is up there and he tells her to run it through Gracie instead, right? That control that she exerts. But then again, at the end, him crying outside of the graduation, realizing, right, the life that he never got to have is just whew, so much. And I think he's brilliant. So yeah, I will say Charles Melton for supporting actor. Amazing. So next up, we'll be talking about The Boy and the Heron. Description for the movie, Mahito, a young 12-year-old boy, struggles to settle in a new town after his mother's death. 
However, when a talking heron informs him that his mother is still alive, he enters an abandoned tower in search of her, which takes him to another world. And this was directed by Hayao Miyazaki. So how do you feel about this movie, and how many times have you seen it? I saw it for the first time yesterday. So I missed my screening at New York Film Festival. I think I talked about this on a previous episode. My train was delayed, and I was underground for a very long time and missed my screening. So a lucky person in standby got my seat, so I'm happy for them. I hope they liked it. But yesterday, I showed up to the theater 30 minutes early because I I said to myself, I'm not missing it this time. I'm going to see The Boy and the Heron. It is happening. And I did. So I'm a little over 24 hours away from my first viewing. And I have to say that I was profoundly moved by this movie. And it only grows stronger as time passes. I don't know when I'm going to see it again. Because I think I just need to sit with it and the first viewing for a little while. I think it rewards multiple viewings. But I I also think it's a movie that I'll never understand. And I think it's better for that. When I first watched it, I felt very overwhelmed to the point when I thought, okay, this plot is actually very convoluted and I don't know what's happening. And it's almost too much because the way that the film starts and the way that we meet the young Mahito, there's this intense war scene, but as he takes the train away from Tokyo and goes to this rural place, we have this very typical Miyazaki stillness, and it's very serene and peaceful and calm, and I settled into that right away. And then, as the story progresses and more layers are exposed, and we venture to these new worlds... I was so overwhelmed by it that I felt almost like it was just too much and it needed focus. It needed to get back to some of those smaller scale, simpler stories that I love of his, like My Neighbor Totoro or Kiki's Delivery Service. This is not like those. This is very different. And and then I think I just, I, I thought to myself, okay, I actually understand. Like I, I, I get it and I, I can't get all of it and I never will, but that's kind of the beauty and the brilliance of it. Mm -hmm. Is that it just, it feels like a dream and it's different from other dreamlike movies I've seen, which I'll try to explain, but it's, you know, it's different than Three Women, for instance, or a David Lynch film, which are very much, I think, dream movies for adults or movies about adults' dreams. This is a movie, I think, about what it feels like when a child tells you a story or a child tells you about their dream. And that is just so inherently beautiful that I feel just like so, so moved by that as a way for Miyazaki to be thinking about life in every way possible. I think it's just, yeah, it's so insanely beautiful, not just in terms of theme, but visual design too. Some of these images, I wish I could pause the movie in the theater just to look at them for an extra five to 10 seconds. But I know you've seen it a few more times than I have. So what did you think of it? And how many times have you seen The Boy and the Heron? I'll be going for my third time tomorrow in IMAX, which I'm very, very excited for. I'm glad that they're doing that release. But I feel similarly about this movie. I really love it. And I said the same thing of, I don't think I'm going to understand this movie no matter how many times I see it. Parts of it. Obviously, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you get what he's doing and there are all of those Miyazaki elements and starting the movie off with the war, the war really affected him and that changed his childhood, his life. 
So to see that start the film, it gives this like Graves of the Fireflies darkness to it where we really haven't seen that from him before. And that's what I love is that this was supposed to be his last movie. He's now confirmed that he's working on another movie. So (laughs) he loves to work and make these beautiful stories that people can relate to and do relate to, but he's still learning how to be a, a new and fresh filmmaker, which is just really exciting. Even him being 80 plus years old. It's incredible. But this movie is part childhood adventure, part swan song for who the grandfather character is, not in the film having potentially been his last, but it's both made for children, yet is very mature. And I love that he can play with childhood, the adults, his parents that we see, or, you know, his stand-in parents, his stepdad, this motherly figure that we learn about through the journal that she left for him. But also in, like in the description, the heron says that she's still alive and he knows that she isn't, but he still wonders. And that's the mystery, the adventure, the fun of the movie is that partway through, he sinks into this castle. And once the movie ends, you wonder, like, was it a dream? What is real? You know, we're kind of similar themes from May, December, but in a very different way. But it's like, was all of that real? Because Miyazaki always shows these things that have this childhood brightness to it but that aren't actually real, but it's still something you believe in and cherish and love. Because as a kid, you see the world differently. And whether you have like imaginary friends, which he's touched on in other films and in the animals that he includes in the movies, but it's about finding a way through life. And another side to that is the grandfather looking back. And Bennett was very clear to make sure everybody goes into this movie knowing that it's him making this story, this movie for his grandson, leaving this behind for him. And those final images where the grandfather is with Mahito just give you chills. I'm pretty sure I cried both of those times because you really feel that he wants to leave the world a better place for his family and it's done with such care so i think just summarizing like there are so many elements to this movie again and it's kind of fun to peel all of those layers back to try to figure out what he's saying and why it's so interesting too because i think you can't really the beauty of this movie and i think in our conversation what makes this movie difficult to discuss is that it really is like a fairy tale. And it's also a reprieve from World War II for the characters, which I think is interesting. But you can't really effectively chronicle what happens because of the structure of the story. Like if we started to describe, okay, first he goes here and then he meets with this character and then he sees this version of an animal, I think it actually does a disservice to the layers of the story because you can't really tell it chronologically because so much of it is in the way that Mahito is experiencing all of this. And it's it at first appears linear to you with the way that the story is unfolding. But again, so much of it is like a dream where when you're in a dream, you're very in it and there's a lot of clarity around it. But there's also a detachment. You're also not there at the same time. We have this other 
parallel world, like you mentioned, right, that he sinks into. And this world is so, I mean, it's just rich and magnificent. Like we go through the water and we go into mountains and castles and we experience and meet all these different animals and there's a parakeet king and the parakeets are just amazing i love the parakeets so much and the way that the birds are used in this movie i think is just it's so it's stunning and it's so imaginative and it's the way that you think about animals when you're a little kid right that like Mm -hmm. they can talk to you or that they're larger than life or that you can interact with them and in this other version of the world, other versions, right, of these characters exist, whether it be animals or humans of different sizes, of different ages, of different experiences. It's so detailed. There's a there's an elusive quality to childhood, I think, in general, that exists in My Neighbor Totoro that also exists here. It's why I keep coming back to the movie and why I keep thinking of it. You talking about the, the grandfather character and how that applies to Miyazaki or the great uncle is that if we go back to the original title of the film, how do you live? Which I think is the best title possible or in that story, it's a dialogue between a 15 year old boy and his elderly uncle. Like that's the, that's the core of the text that it's based on. And while I believe that that's also the key to the movie and it also represents Miyazaki's relationship with his grandson and the way that he views art It reminded me and made me think a lot about, and again, stay with me, my comparisons are really all over the place today, but it made me think a lot about a movie that I loved last year, which is The Eternal Daughter, the Joanna Hogg film, and specifically about how artists feel about creating art. Art as an act of immortality, really, right? Art as a way to remain immortal in a way while also acknowledging death. So... The older characters know that they're going to leave the younger characters behind, but at the same time, gifting them with something in the form of a film or in the form of art, that's the way that they live on and preserve their life and how that act is inherently very vulnerable. To do that and to think about, to acknowledge that you'll leave, but to create something that will stay with the people that you're leaving behind is heavy and to do that for a movie that kids can watch is again it's just the the brilliance of Miyazaki and I didn't cry because of the great uncle I cried because of his mom when I say cry I will say wept (laughs) the children next to me were concerned (laughs) they actually were commenting on it to their mother and I was very embarrassed but it was fine it's fine um it's just I I had to start wiping away the tears anything with moms Mm -hmm. just yeah really gets me but i'm not going to spoil how that comes to be in the movie because i think the the surprise and the way that miyazaki details his mother it's one of the most beautiful things in the movie how that character is drawn visually and around a specific motif so it's a difficult film to talk about but i really really loved it i'm so happy that i did Another really emotional part to the film or one that enhances what you're watching is the score. And I just absolutely love the Joe Hisaichi score. It starts off so intense and you immediately feel like Hisaichi is saying goodbye through song. And to hear it adds another dimension to this movie too. But I love the score. There are 
moments with the mom or when Mahito's alone that just sweep you off your feet because of the music. And it's similar to previous Miyazaki films where it's playful, but it can be dark. And it's just so complex all of the time. And I love there are different motifs in the score that repeat. So on the soundtrack, which is finally out, you can listen to it. I listened to it in its entirety on the subway yesterday and broke down. Oh, <laughs> There are some great, great songs that mm-hmm. I will absolutely be mentioning on our Oscar contenders. And what I hope is nominated because, yeah, beautiful songs. But the way it ties into the picture and really adds depth to everything just is incredible. Uh, And I think like one other moment I really just wanted to bring up because I thought it was such a beautiful visual metaphor that reminded me of fairy tales. There's a scene when, so after Mahito has gone to his new home, his dad and the his new stepmom who really resembles his mom he's following this heron and i think the heron is great i love the design of the heron and this sort of two-pronged design really of the character we have these two versions which i really like but this the way that the boy is so intrigued by this heron and he starts following him and this the heron really functions as this kind of trickster character in the film which I really like but when he's trying to go up the stairs of the tower and the entrance is partially blocked off and he can't quite get through he can't cram himself through he's trying and he's like almost there but he can't do it it really made me think of how you know when you get to his age which is adolescence He's not a child anymore. He's he's growing, right? It's that place where you can't quite surrender to your imagination anymore. You're getting a bit wiser. You're getting more adult in your ways of thinking that you're not as likely to, again, just like surrender and believe that anymore. Like in Totoro, for instance. And that kind of half in, half out approach is such a smart way to show that changing belief that the character has, but also that children have as they get older and become more reluctant to just believe anything willy-nilly, especially if it's something more magical. So I really liked that in terms of a visual representation or illustration of that time in life. So I know at the top of the episode, we just mentioned that this one animated film at the New York Film Critics Circle. What do you think of The Boy and the Heron's awards potential? I think it's safe to say that it will be nominated. The problem is we have Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse won by a landslide. And I don't think there's as big of a gap here, but I still think Spider-Man might come out on top. But God, am I hoping that the boy and the heron has an actual chance because this, you know, while it may win a lot of the critics' prizes... I think it deserves more than just that. This is a movie that you can watch at any age and have a totally different experience. And I don't know if I can rank it yet among Miyazaki's films, but it's definitely one of his that I will think of over and over because there are just so many things that can relate to life and your experience that he captures so well. So I hope it does well. I'm, I'm really rooting for it. 
obviously animated feature is the big one and i talked about score i mean put it into screenplay too i don't know if that has actual potential animated features rarely get into other categories but i think there's a chance or at least there should be yeah i mean there there absolutely should be a chance in a in a just world which we know it's it's not with award season this would get into picture as well Mm -hmm. but yeah i think its strongest case for me really is just animated feature and score it's one of the greatest scores of the year it was something i i just i fell right into as i was watching it It has this ethereal magical quality to it that i found just so so beautiful and yeah i think in terms of awards potential i don't know yeah it's hard going up against spider-man across the spider-verse which i also really liked but yeah i think if i just had to predict if i had to make a smart prediction i would just say animated feature with the hope of score Mm -hmm. these movies and these sounds are just some of the most iconic in all of cinema you can when you say my neighbor totoro you can hear that theme Mm -hmm. you hear spirited away they're all so unique in their own but they're so memorable so yeah i'm really hoping for those categories as well And we didn't mention this at the top, but this was second runner-up for the Audience Award at TIFF, which I'm hoping that win and the critics' wins keep it a part of the conversation throughout the rest of the season. But if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I mean, I love the animated feature recognizes the whole film, but I'm going to go with score. I was very moved by the score and really blown away by it, and... I think it's going to be my new version of Nicholas Bertel's If Beale Street Could Talk score. And what I mean by that is, if I ever need a good cry, I'm going to put this on. And I think that Joe Hisaishi should be recognized. Nominated here, for sure. I love this score. What about you? Yeah, I love that answer too. But I think I'm going to go for Miyazaki for director. I think in approaching this story was so grand but the way Miyazaki makes it his own is just unquestionable and that's how he is with all of his movies but I think it's a beautiful potent story that will speak to children to families to generations and the way he does it through the animals and the characters are really just a wonderful experience to have over and over again definitely try to see this on the big screen the colors are magnificent and the cinematography the design it is really stunning so i have to applaud miyazaki once again i love that answer too so that was our episode on two of our favorite movies of the year may december and the boy and the heron may december is out on netflix right now and i think still in some select theaters And The Boy and the Heron is out in the U.S. right now, limited in New York and L.A., and expands today, December 8th. So definitely go see this film. Let us know what you think about both of these. And I'm excited to cover the few films that we have next. Yeah, next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be talking about a few other movies that have limited and wider releases in December. And those are Poor Things and American Fiction. We'll also be talking about other critics' wins, namely the LA Critics Awards, LAFCA, and we're getting Golden Globe noms. Whether we want to talk about this ceremony or not, 
Um, they're coming. They are. They're going to be on CBS. We're ready. Oh, that's where they are. Yeah. Oh, geez. <laughs> they found a home. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be fun. And I'm hoping to see the movies that we talked about today show up in those nominations. Yeah, me too. Well, thank you all for listening. If you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod. And if you really like our show and would like to subscribe for bonus content, you can go to patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you very soon. Bye.